Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It is Thursday, March 4th, 2010. I have no idea how I'm going to get through this program today. I guess I can just do it one story at a time, isn't it? Put one story in front of the other. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't sing over my uh, intro music here. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And uh, this show would not be complete if I didn't use that, the, that opportunity of discernment to once again tell you of the amazingly great news that Jesus Christ died on the cross for all of your sins. That really um, is what the program's about. And so the other stuff, well, that that's all really important, uh, but it's kind of a means to an end, if you would. And that, that end is the preaching of the gospel to you, you hearing that Jesus died for you. I don't care if you've been a Christian your entire life. One of the things that, that I think a lot of people are mistaken about is that they think that the gospel is a message that we as Christians use only in evangelism. That, you know, listen, it's, it's that, it's that sinner out there, that guy who, who isn't in the church yet, who needs to hear uh, that Jesus Christ died for our sins. But I mean, once you've, you know, you've signed on to the program, you, you don't need to hear about the forgiveness of sins. That's, that's just silly. Who, uh, why would we need to be doing that? No, 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 no. Think back to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul writing to the church, uh, to the churches in Rome in the, in his epistle, uh, to the Romans says that he longs to come to them and to preach the gospel to them. You see, the gospel is not just for unbelievers. In fact, I would say the gospel is primarily for believers. And because it's in the gospel, we hear of this amazing story. And it's not a story. It's absolutely true. That God was in Jesus Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them, and that Jesus died on the cross for all of our sins. See, all of us, by nature, were sinners, and at the same time, the scriptures also reveal that we have God's law written on our hearts. As a result of it, each and every one of us has our conscience 
basically bearing witness against us because of just how wicked we are. So each and every one of us knows, knows deep down inside. And I know it sounds kind of subjective, but I'm basing this on the objective word here, that we have the law of God written on our hearts. Each one of us knows that we stand guilty. And what is it that that can calm our consciences, can quiet the thunders of our conscience, which really are the, the little mini megaphones of Mount Sinai, God thundering against our, our, our unrighteousness, our sinfulness, and our wickedness. What is that that is powerful enough to quench the fires of Sinai and to silence the, these, these thunderings of the law? Well, a lot of people, they turn to their own self-righteousness. They think that they can quiet uh, the, the law and their conscience by pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, trying harder, and uh, and basically trying to be good and to try to pull it off. The thing is, is that if, you're, you, if you think that your obedience is the thing that can quiet the thunders of Sinai, no comfort there. There is no comfort there because as you try that, you find out that you fail at that really most miserably. And so the law and your obedience and your self-righteousness can't quiet the, the thundering peals of Mount Sinai. There's only one thing that can, and that's Jesus Christ. You know, the other day I was reading a scripture uh, to the family, and, uh, you know, I want to share this. I didn't have this planned, uh, Roseboro winging it here. Um uh, Abraham, the story of Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice of, uh, of, uh, you know, the, uh, the sacrifice of Isaac. And it's just this ridiculously amazing story that points us to Jesus. It, it really, really is. I, it's almost outrageous. Um, l- let's see if I can pull this up on my, uh, yeah, here we go. All right. Genesis, um, 22. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, turn there. I, oh, man, this is just so crazy good. All right. Sorry. I, I apologize if I sound like I'm just kind of off on a tangent at the beginning of the program, but that's okay. How do I say it? I like to wax eloquent. Okay. Listen to this. This is, oh, man, this was part of the, the readings uh, from, the, from the Old Testament the other day in the Treasury of Daily Prayer. And uh, was reading this uh, to uh, my wife and kids at the uh, at the dinner table the other night. And... Oh, my goodness, does this thing preach. All right, are we ready? Here we go. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, Moriah, sorry, Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now, Mount Moriah, okay, it's in Jerusalem, okay? And here's the deal. The slopes of Mount Moriah begin outside of the old city gates of Jerusalem. Okay, and uh, back in Jesus's time, Mount Moriah began its ascent, you know, outside of the city walls. And by the time you got to the city walls, it was already pretty steep. But the 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 Mount Moriah itself peaks 
on the Temple Mount, where the Temple Mount is right now is the top of Mount Moriah. Okay, that's all playing into this, and this is the, I mean this is ridiculously amazing at how it points to the cross. Okay, so here we go. So uh, he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went uh, to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, on the third day, on the third day, this is just crazy. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. You have got to be kidding me. Isn't this an amazing picture? Here we have Isaac being described as Abraham's only son. On the third day, they had t- they had approached the mountain. And on Isaac, who is going to be the sacrifice, on his shoulders is placed the wood of the sacrifice. I'm reading this, and all I can see is Jesus and him carrying the crossbeam after he had been scourged and beaten and flogged. As he ascends Mount Moriah to be the sacrifice for our sins. I mean, it's all right here in Genesis 22. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. (laughs) no truer words could have ever been spoken. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And what I see is Jesus being laid down on the cross and his hands and his feet being pierced. You can see it. It's right here in this text. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. I mean, look at that. How many thousands of years was that written before Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, King of kings and Lord of lords, was born of the Virgin Mary, 
and then suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified for our sins. I mean, here we have in in Genesis 22, this amazing picture and this amazing promise that God will provide on the Mount of the Lord. On the Mount of the Lord, it will be provided that God himself would provide the lamb for the sacrifice. And he did. His only begotten son, Jesus Christ, for our sins, for your sins, for mine. I can think of no important thing to tell you than to constantly point you to Jesus Christ and what he's done. You see, the scriptures are all about him and what he has done for you. Of the of your the lengths to which your great God and Savior has gone to redeem you, to purchase you, to buy you back, to die for your sins, to propitiate God's wrath, and that's what the story is all about. And here it is. I mean, this living, this history, this history lesson here of Abraham and Isaac, they played out in their lives prophetically the very picture of Jesus Christ and him dying. And a few thousand years, maybe two, I think it's about 2,000 years after this. I, I'm not sure of the exact timeline. I have to look in my Lutheran study Bible. I didn't pull that up today. God did provide on Mount Moriah itself, just outside the city gates on the slopes of Moriah, the Lord provided the sacrifice. He provided the lamb. And it's for you and it's for me. And it's such good news. God no longer, for those of us who trust in Christ, who've been given the gift of faith and repentance, we're no longer under the wrath of God. We can call God not just Father. That, 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 that word doesn't even come close to what's really conveyed there in the original languages. We have a face-to-face relationship with God that we can call him Daddy. It doesn't quite sound right, I know. It sounds way too familiar. But that's it. And it's all because of what Christ has done for you and has done for me. And sadly, but true, our enemy, the devil, is working overtime to obscure this amazing good news and to make people not see who the scriptures are about and not understand and not perceive what Christ has done for them, but instead is feeding them lies that deceive them and point them away from Christ and point them to themselves and their own works and their own self-righteousness and their own ideas rather than the ideas and the doctrines and the truths laid down in scripture. So here at Fighting for the Faith, we tackle these ideas head on. We do the politically incorrect thing. It and that's it is it is what it is. It's just politically incorrect, but it's got to be done because what did what does the scripture say? In season and out of season. Well, I got news for you: preaching sound doctrine and preaching God's word not in season right now. <laughs> and what do you do when it's not in season? You do it anyway. But see, it's not my gospel. It's not my theology. It's not my doctrine. It's not my good news. In fact, I don't even stand here as, or actually I'm sitting, I don't even sit here at Fighting for the Faith behind this uh, radio mic as somebody who 
is the outstanding moral example, the guy that you should try to emulate. Oh, no, I have no righteousness of my own. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I have nothing to offer you regarding my own righteousness and piety. But let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you what Jesus has done for you. It's much better than my own righteousness. Because <laughs> I haven't got any. But I'm covered in the righteousness of Christ. And so are you if you are in Christ. You are clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. Christ has taken your sin on himself. And when you have been given repentance and the forgiveness of sins through the preaching of his cross and his shed blood, you are clothed in his righteousness. God no longer sees you as filthy, rotten, dirty sinner. He sees you as perfectly righteous, covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Can't improve on that perfection. It's all good news. <clears throat> all right. Now, <clears throat> got a bit. I didn't expect to kind of head that way today, but I thought it was important. So, well, well, I just decided to wax eloquent that way. All right. Today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We've got a couple of, uh, well, let's see what we're going to do here. Got Perry Noble. Uh, have some Perry Noble uh, news, if you would. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Perry Noble. Today uh, was the Unleash Conference. Uh, Perry Noble uh, every year holds a conference for church leaders and church planters and so-called uh, pastors who have bought into the CEO Druckerite uh, methodologies of uh, how to do church. And uh, unfortunately, th there's some very serious errors that uh, are associated with their methodologies. And uh, specifically, the, the errors have to do with the fact that um, – the, these pastors are taught, told, and and this message is reinforced and was definitely reinforced in today's uh, Unleash conference. As soon as I have audio on that, I'll be playing for you either some uh, some major sound bites from it to kind of help you know, help you hear what happened, uh, you know, f using Perry's own words, or I might end up doing a full blown sermon review on it. The, the only issue is that is that Perry goes on a long, long time about himself, and uh, that kind of an issue there, but. Um, uh, so we we got a new story that's out there today about uh, you know uh, that Pastor uh, Perry Noble got some ink. We'll talk about that, and then a friend of mine on Facebook and a listener to the program actually wrote something on you know on his Facebook. Uh, I guess on Facebook you have something that's similar to a blog that you can update, and he wrote something today that I thought was worth passing along, and we'll talk about that. And then a great article by uh, John MacArthur entitled, How Did We Make Such an Evangelical Mess? Absolutely worth passing along today. And uh, then we've got some uh, persecution news, uh, uh, news of the church being persecuted in the U.K., uh, possibly one, possibly two stories I, I want to get to today on that. If we don't get to that today, we'll talk about it on Monday's program because tomorrow's uh, Friday Light. And uh, and then we our sermon review today comes from Mars Hill uh, Bible Church in uh, Grand Rapids. That's where uh, that's where Rob Bell is one of the teaching pastors, and Shane Hips, who is a Universalist, flat out Universalist, 
is now one of the teaching pastors. He's been officially installed, and he's up and running, and we're going to be listening to uh, his first official sermon as one of the official teaching pastors uh, there at Mars Hill Bible Church. And the name of it is The God in Nineveh, and uh, he's be- he begins a series on the book of uh, Jonah that they're going to be reading there at Mars Hill. And uh, this is a uh, great example of how not to read the Bible, so you definitely don't want to miss that. We've got all kinds of stuff we want to cover today. So uh, with that, um, let me pull up the music that we use to uh, discuss Perry Noble. It really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flair. What effect a little smoke is with a dash of hocus-pocus and the scent of burning sulfur in the air. I'm a fraud, a hoke, a charlatan, a joke, but they love me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flair. And it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say, as long as I say it with a flower. First I rattle off a ready stock of gibberish and puppycock and fix you with my best hypnotic stare. With my moans and groans and soporific tones, they have cheered me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say. I sell it when I tell it with a C. All right. Yeah, that's... I, t- I gotta tell you, that song from Bedknobs and Broomsticks uh, is just absolutely the correct music to be playing as we introduce uh, Perry Noble. Anyway, the story is uh, from the uh, Christian Post, written by Lillian Kwan. I think this actually fits the uh, the standard uh, definition when, when in journalistic speak when we talk about puff pieces. I think this is a puff piece. <laughs> Uh, the headline reads, uh, South Carolina pastor exposes practical atheists among Christians. <gasps> Gasp! We've got practical atheists among Christians? Okay, well, I... Yep, yeah, yeah. yeah you smell that? Yeah, that's that smell, by the way, is this, this, the, the smell that accompanies a teaching where law and gospel are completely confused. All right, here's what the story says. Quote, Here's the deal. You got to say this the way Perry Noble would say it. We believe in Jesus enough to get us out of hell, but not actually enough to change the way we live. That's a, that's a problem in the church. Really? And this is coming from a man I don't even think has been to seminary. Um, most Americans claim belief in God, but many are living as Christian atheists, according to some pastors. Quote, I'm sick and tired of the fact that people can attend church for 10 to 20 years and never change, said New Spring Church Senior Pastor Perry Noble. All right, right off the bat, what's the problem with this? What are we hearing? Law, 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 law. Okay. Now, ironically, okay, Listen, even a blind nut can find a squirrel every now and then. Ironically, uh, Pastor Noble here um, is um, there's an element of truth to what he's saying, okay? Because all of our sin, okay, every time you and I sin in a very real way, every sin that we commit 
is a sin against the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Every time you and I sin, it is it proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that we're sinners, number one. But also, it springs from, its root is in idolatry and a breaking of the first commandment. So, uh, when you lie, you are breaking both the first commandment and the commandment against lying. You see what I'm saying? So, every sin, you know, multiple sins. And then you got James. When you throw James into the mix... James basically says that if you've you've broken one of the commandments, you're guilty of breaking them all. Okay? Plain and simple. But everything comes back down to uh, the sin of thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now that, by the way, is different than being an atheist. An atheist is somebody who doesn't believe in God. Okay? So... I mean, you got to work with this thing. So, so every time you do, you sin, you don't you don't have life change. You're quote a practical atheist. No, you're actually really an idolater. But you know, hey, let's see what Pastor Noble has to say about this. Noble launched a new series titled "Practical Atheist," borrowing the term from fellow pastor Craig Groeschel of LifeChurch.tv, who preached on a similar series uh, years back and has a book on the subject coming out this month. Practical atheist or Christian atheist is defined as someone who believes in God but lives as if he doesn't. Now, here's the problem, okay? Um, this definition is, is kind of a worthless definition in this sense. Um, here's the deal. Which of you would like to email me and say that you've conquered sin and you no longer sin anymore. And by the way, after sending me that email, I would like to talk to your spouse or your uh, their closest friends and family to verify this uh, this particular claim. Because when we look into God's law, what we all what we find out is it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for a day or you've been a Christian for 60 years you still wrestle with your sinful nature. As Paul describes the Christian life in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul, who was an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself, what did he say? Talking in present tense, he said, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Who's going to rescue me from this body of sin? This does not, by the way, basically mean that, no, you can go ahead and sin, it's no big deal. No, sin is a huge deal. Breaking God's law is is a big deal. And you do it every day. But the solution to this problem is not you making a decision to pull yourself up by your bootstraps so that you can have life change. There's only one solution to this problem. Christ and him crucified for our sins. All of your sins have been conquered, overcome, atoned for, and God's wrath propitiated because of what Christ has done. So Christians, we live, basically our lives are lived in daily repentance and daily receiving of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, daily taking up our cross and following Christ and understanding, you know, what what does John say? 
He who says he's without sin is a liar, makes God out to be a liar. But God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we confess our sins. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Plain and simple. The cross is the solution for our sins, not us trying harder to, quote, experience life change. As I have pointed to in the past and will have to continually make reference to moving on into the future, Tiger Woods. He's now finished with rehab. I saw the headlines. You know, he's he's back from rehab, and uh, he's experiencing life change. He's a reformed adulterer, right? He's no longer chasing after his uh, harem of women, and uh, and has you know pulled himself up by his bootstraps, gone to therapy, and has now recommitted himself to his wife. He's experiencing life change. But he's a Buddhist. He ain't a Christian. So are you to somehow say that because Tiger Woods has experienced life change, that he's a practical Christian even though he's a Buddhist? You see, it doesn't work this way. Okay, let's see. Um, uh, Groeschel calls himself a recovering Christian atheist. He says that the Christian atheist, that Christian atheism is a is a is a fast-spreading spiritual pandemic which can poison, sicken, and even kill eternally. Really? I mean, never mind. When I was a kid, we just called these people, what, carnal Christians? Wasn't that the the term that was in vogue back then? Yeah, these guys act like they've invented fire. Look! Craig Rochelle discovered fire. No way. Let's send out a me- uh, press release to the media. Craig Rochelle of LifeChurch.tv. He discovered fire. And hey, and here's some better news. Uh, Perry Noble, he invented the wheel. Now, I'm telling you. <clears throat> okay. In uh, concordance with the well-known LifeChurch.tv pastor, Noble began preaching on the matter on Sunday, recognizing that believers may say the right things or look the part, but not necessarily live as Christ followers. Like the people at his um, that are on staff there at uh, New Spring who um, set out to destroy Dr. Duncan's life. Yeah, I wonder. Uh, 72% of Christians claim that they have made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ, according to New Spring Church, but only 17% feel that the local church is necessary for spiritual growth. And only one in three Christians believe God expects them to be holy. Where's the disconnect the church uh, the church poses? It's in your preaching, Pastor Noble. It's it, That's really where the problem is. Jesus Christ didn't die on the cross so that we can just uh, say a prayer and live however we want. <laughs> Listen to that sentence. Quote, Jesus Christ didn't die on the cross so that we can just say a prayer and live however we want. Here, let me rework this according to the way the Bible works. Are you ready? Here we go. Wait a second. Let me finish this. It said Noble, clad in a gray shirt that said love. He died so we in turn would give uh, give ourselves to him. Yeah, no. Okay. <clears throat> let me rework this sentence. Hang on a second here. I'm wordsmithing, and I'm doing it with a pen. Okay. Um, here, here we go. Are you ready? Reworking the sentence, it, it should say, because we continually live uh, the the way we want, and we sin daily and sin much, and because we haven't, there's no way possible for us to give ourselves to God because we're dead in trespasses and sins. Christ died on the cross for us. That's what it should say. Okay, so the sentence instead, the way he has it, is Christ didn't die on the cross so that we can just say a prayer and live however we want. Excuse me. The problem is, is that we live however we want. 
and Christ therefore died for our sins. The, see, the solution is staring him right there in the face. Christ's death on the cross for our sins. And he just turns that into some kind of a slogan thing, you know, to try to convince us to try harder. Oh, man, what a mess. All right, we're up on our first break. When we come back, I got a little bit more Perry Noble news. And then I got this uh, article from John MacArthur that I'd like to read to you. And then you definitely don't want to miss our sermon review today from the brand new preaching pastor or teaching pastor. <clears throat> The Universalist Shane Hips uh, from Mars Hill Bible Church. You don't want to miss that. Uh, this, I guarantee you it's going to be all kinds of um, bad and interesting. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Resource made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition, and in Lectio Divina we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room or sit in silence for several minutes or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair and... Oh, no. You out there! How much more to experience the presence of God if you are using a jackhammer? Shut up! Don't be sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry! Next, 
When you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of Scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no, there's no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of Scripture. Judas hung him, himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself. Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hung himself. Hung himself. Hung himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide. What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death. What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture? Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was, Judas hung himself. It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like his. This is rubbish! A complete waste of my time! I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something! If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way! Just open the Bible and read it! Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website... PirateChristianRadio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit PirateChristianRadio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Warning, you can't save yourself or sanctify yourself by keeping the law. 
Christ does all the work, and it's done through the gospel, the gospel. All right, I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, and that means we depend upon your generous financial gifts and contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. You can support us financially uh, by visiting our website. And on our website, you're going to see two friendly yellow buttons, which, you know, which you know, we're all about diversity here at Fighting for the Faith. We have some diverse ways in which you can support us. Uh, what, the first one says, join our crew. Uh, crew members, uh, by the way, that's a mere $6.95 a month. It comes out of your account automatically after you sign up. And crew members get access to our secret pirate cove. That's right. We have a secret pirate cove, and it's full of treasure, theological treasure. It's good stuff, really, really good stuff. I, I it, good, Again, it's all designed to really help you grow deeper in God's word and Christ-centered theology and doctrine and apologetics. Good stuff. And, of course, if you would like to uh, you know, fill in the blank as to how much you would like to uh, gift us here at Fighting for the Faith, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, and you can securely uh, send your gift in that way, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, hang on a second here. Let me pull this up here. I have a friend of mine on Facebook that sent me a very, I thought it was an interesting little thing worth passing along. His name is uh, Daniel... Uh, Cassis, and he says, something I unleashed from New Springs website. <laughs> Interesting title. He says, um, here's what Daniel says. He says, seeing all the talk about uh, today's Unleash conference at New Spring in Anderson, South Carolina, I did some poking around in their Unleash resources from prior years. Uh, uh, mostly I was curious to learn how they approach the subjects of preaching and teaching, since that's a subject very close to my heart. Interestingly, I found almost nothing on these topics except for a, a brief note by Pastor Perry Noble about how he prepares for sermons by listening to a lot of podcasts, reading very few books, and brainstorming with staff members. Uh, for now, I will lay aside my views on this process uh, to explain what I did find, uh, this quote by creative pastor Shane Duffy in the PDF notes of his service planning break breakout session from 2008. He used five rules of defensive driving as analogous to how they apply to their service planning and management practices. Overall, I found that those points to be uh, relevant insofar as they apply to a church uh, with a heavily a heavily process oriented service approach such as Newspring, but then there is this six bonus rule. Uh, bonus rule number six: Don't swerve for animals. When people swerve for animals, more often than not, they end up hitting something else. Sadly enough, this frequently ends in their death. In the church, you will have critics whose goal is to get you off the road, off the vision of your church. I want to point those words out. Off the vision of your church. Do not swerve for them. You can slow down, try and help them understand the vision. Stop for a minute, but if that does not work, run them over. Yes, that's correct. Shane Duffy from New Spring suggests that if you have a critic, you got to stay true to the vision. And um, if you can't convince them to understand the vision and hop along the vision, then you are to run them over. 
A brief internet search will inform you of the October 2009 firing of a New Spring staff member due to uh, severe and repeated threats against a blogger who criticized their church. Uh, this blogger, by the way, uh, Dr. Duncan from Anderson College, uh, this blogger brought his concerns to his county sheriff department, which was prepared to file a charge of dis- uh, distribution of pornography against the staff member. Uh, while the charge was never filed, the fired staff member and several other employees of New Spring admitted their involvement in vicious and prolonged campaign in a vicious and prolonged campaign of threats and intimidation with violent and profane language and inferences aimed at this blogger and his family through the Internet and mobile phone services. Shane Duffy never admitted involvement, but the blogger's extensive cataloging of each and every detail of the assault clearly implicates him in at least encouraging and fueling the campaign. My main question then is this. When a church staff member sees critics of his church as animals to be run over, how long will it be until something like this happens? Are Duffy's views his own, or were they fostered and cultivated by uh, the New Spring uh, employee environment? <clears throat> now, I'm going to answer this question for you, by the way, Daniel. Okay. One of the things, uh, by the way, I, I've mentioned this before. I do have a master's degree in business administration from Pepperdine University. Okay. And the focus of my master's degree is in leadership and organizational change. So uh, I have a degree, I have a master's degree, a graduate degree in leadership. You could literally say that. That's exactly, I've, uh, leadership was the emphasis, the emphasis of my uh, MBA. Okay. And one of the things that is true, and this is true of every human organization, all organizations take on the characteristics of the person who's at the top. It, uh, it's, it's amazing how it happens. It's, it's almost like magic. And so who's ever the leader, who's ever the, at the top of an organization, he's the one who sets the tone. He's the one who sets the, the uh, attitude for the, uh, for the culture within an organization. The fact that Shane Duffy is saying, don't swerve for critics, but run them over, treat them like animals, um, uh, th- that, is that doesn't have its genesis in Shane Duffy. That has its genesis in Perry Noble. Perry Noble is the one who's responsible for setting the tone of that culture, and he's the one who's fostering this kind of hatred. By the way, I, listening today to uh, several of the uh, keynotes at the uh, Unleash conference today, and I, I, they'll be available shortly enough for me to... Uh, you know, to download and listen to and and uh, analyze. Uh, as I pointed out yesterday, Perry Noble absolutely buys into this idea that the vision is supreme. Okay, this is a fundamental problem with the purpose-driven, seeker-driven methodologies. It teaches a pastor that he can make himself worthy to receive from God a direct vision for their individual churches. And that once that vision is given from God to the leader who's shown himself worthy to receive it, the vision cannot be critiqued. The vision is is basically non-critiquable. There are no godly critics in their way of thinking. Nobody has the right to challenge the vision. No one has the right to biblically criticize it. In fact, what was funny is is that one of the quotes today, and I, I apologize, this isn't exactly word for word. Uh, this is my paraphrase of it, and hopefully I'll, I'll be able to play it soon. Perry Noble said, 
he said something to the effect of there's a lot of guys in the church today say we need to go back and do things the way they were done in the book of Acts. And the look on Perry Noble's face was like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. And he, he basically implied, listen, God would say to you, that's how the church, that's how the church was started. That's how the foundation of the church was, you know, got going. You don't go back to the foundation and try to do things the way they were doing things in the first century. You got to pay attention to how God is doing things now. They're different now. Basically, cutting you off from the scriptures and having you instead hang on to this vision. In fact, Perry said, this is real simple. I give you seven steps for how to make your church grow. Ready? Listen to God. Do what he says. What does that mean? Listen to God's vision and then do what he says. The entire purpose-driven thing is dependent upon a direct revelation from God. And once you get it, there are no godly critics. And worse, in their culture and the way they talk... Critics are animals that are should, that should be run over. Yeah, good job, Daniel. Good piece. Okay, one more before the break. Um, from yesterday's uh, Grace to You blog, Dr. John MacArthur wrote a piece called "How Did We Make Such a uh, Evangelical Mess?" And I think Dr. MacArthur has some great great points here worth listening to here let me read this dr macarthur writes he says you don't have to be an astute observer of the evangelical scene to notice the unrelenting barrage of outlandish ideas philosophies and programs never in the history of the church has so much innovation met with so little critical thinking Giving a thoughtful biblical response becomes harder and harder all the time. Merely sorting through all the evangelical trends and recognizing which of these novelties really represent dangerous threats to the health and harmony of the church is challenging enough. Effectively answering the huge smorgasbords of accompanying errors poses an even greater dilemma. New errors sometimes seem to multiply faster uh, than the previous ones can be answered. To sort it all out in a godly way, cutting a straight path through the wreckage of evangelicalism, several old-fashioned Christ-like virtues are absolutely essential. Biblical discernment being the first, wisdom, fortitude, determination, endurance, skill in handling scripture, strong convictions, the ability to speak candidly without waffling, and a willingness to enter into conflict. And you know what? I, Dr. MacArthur is absolutely right. If you've been following me on Twitter, then you know uh, that uh, over the past few days, I mean, there are people who've been taking some pretty interesting shots at me lately. When you speak the truth and you speak it boldly and with conviction and certainty, you are going to get people who are going to come out of the woodwork to take a shot at you. That is just part of the territory it's part of the job but see it's that very thing that actually i think is keeping people away from doing this because in our culture right now in, in american westernized culture we want peace at all cost and we avoid conflict because somehow it's a virtue to be politically correct and it's unvirtuous and culturally wrong to be politically incorrect. Politically incorrect is any kind of speech or things that you're saying that could offend or hurt the feelings of another person. Okay. And so, but the thing is, is that 
this is exactly the kind of culture that undermines what biblically needs to be happening and what has happened throughout the history of the Christian church, throughout the history of the church. The church has candidly spoken out and men have, have God has raised up wise, bold, discerning men who were determined and had endurance, skill in handling the words, were had strong convictions and spoke candidly without waffling and had a willingness to enter into conflict. Not because conflict is a is a positive thing. You enter into conflict because you love your neighbor. Because you love them. You fight for them. Our battle isn't against flesh and blood. It's for them. So you enter into conflict because it's a necessary thing to do. Because you love your neighbor. Because truth is so important that the errors that undermine it actually send people to hell. You have to love your neighbor enough to tell them the truth. Serve them. Now that you have been set free by Christ and have been given mercy and the forgiveness of your sins, show mercy to your fellow brothers and sisters in Adam and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins to them and do it boldly and candidly. And yes, if you do that, you will find yourself in conflict. But you don't enter into it hoping for conflict. You You enter into it understanding that, yes, conflict might come about as a result of me making this bold and certain proclamation. But that's the price that I have to pay, the cross I have to carry, so that I can love my neighbor enough to tell him the truth. Let me continue with Dr. MacArthur's piece here. He says, uh, let's be honest. Those qualities, those are not qualities the contemporary evangelical movement has cultivated. In fact, the exact opposite is true. Consider the values and motives uh, that prompt postmodern evangelicals to do the things they do. The larger evangelical movement today is obsessed with opinion polls, brand identity, market research, merchandising schemes, innovative strategies, and numerical growth. Evangelicals are also preoccupied with matters such as their image before the general public and before the academic world and their clout in the political arena and their portrayal by the media in similar shallow self-centered matters. Maintaining a positive image has become a priority over guarding the truth. The PR-driven church, somewhere along the line, evangelicals bought the lie that the Great Commission is a marketing mandate. Uh, the leading strategists for church growth today are therefore all pollsters and public re- public relations managers. In the words of Rick Warren, quote, if you want to advertise your church to the unchurch, you must learn to think and speak like they do. <clears throat> An endless parade of self-styled church growth specialists has been repeating that same mantra, and it's a lie, for several decades, and multitudes of Christians uh, and church leaders now accept the idea uncritically. Both their message to the world and the means by which they communicate that message have been carefully tailored by consumer relations experts to appeal to worldly minds. Many church leaders have radically changed the way they look at the gospel. Rather than seeing it as a message from God that Christians are called to proclaim as Christ's ambassadors without tampering with it or changing it in any way, they now treat it like a commodity to be sold at market rather than plainly preaching God's word in a way that unleashes the power and the truth of it. They desperately try to package the message to make it subtler and more appealing to the world. Runaway pragmatism and trivial pursuit. The most compelling question in the minds and on the lips of many pastors today is not 
what's true, but rather what works. Evangelicals these days are less about theology than they do. They know care less about theology than they do about methodology. Truth has taken a backseat to a more pragmatic concern. Uh, when a person is trying uh, hard to cu- customize one's message to meet the felt needs of one audience, of one's audience, earnestly contending for the faith is then out of the question. That is precisely why, for many years now, evangelicals, le- evangelical leaders have systematically embraced and fostered almost every worldly, shallow, and frivolous idea that comes into the church. A pathological devotion to superficiality has practically become the chief hallmark of the movement. Evangelicals are obsessed with pop culture, and they ape it fanatically. Uh, contemporary church leaders are so busy trying to stay current with the latest fads that they rarely give much sober thought to weightier scriptural matters. In the typical evangelical church, even Sunday services are often devoted to the trivial pursuit of worldly things. After all, churches are competing for attention in a media-driven world, so the church vainly tries to put on a bigger, flashier spectacle than the world. Evangelical fad surfing. Contemporary evangelicals have therefore become very much like children tossed here and there by waves and carried about with every wind of doctrine. That's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. They follow whatever is the latest popular trend. They buy whatever is the current bestseller. They line up to see any celebrity who speaks spiritually sounding language. They watch eagerly for the next Hollywood movie with any spiritual theme on religious imagery that they can latch onto. And evangelicals discuss these fads and fashions endlessly, as if every cultural icon that captures their attention had profound and serious spiritual significance. Evangelical churchgoers desperately want their churches to stay on the leading edge of whatever is currently in vogue in the evangelical community. It's almost, it almost seems like ancient history now, but for a while, any church that wanted to be in fashion had to sponsor seminars on how to pray the prayer of Jabez. But woe to the church that was still doing Jabez when the purpose-driven life took center stage. By then, any church that wanted to retain its standing and credibility in the evangelical movement had better be doing the 40 days of purpose. And if your church didn't get through the 40 days in time to host group studies or preach a series of sermons about the Da Vinci Code before Hollywood, the, before the Hollywood movie version came out, then your church was considered badly out of touch with what really matters. Is it too late now if you missed any of those? Oh, sorry. It is too late now if you missed any of those trends. To use the language of the movement, they are all so five minutes ago. If your church is just now experimenting with emerging style worship, candles, postmodern liturgy, and the like, then you're clearly way behind. That train already left the station and crashed. Of course, I'm not suggesting that all of those trends are equally bad. Some of them are not necessarily bad at all. For example, there can be great benefit in teaching a congregation how to respond to something like the Da Vinci Code. But contemporary evangelicals have been conditioned to anticipate and follow from fad to fad with an uninhibited and undiscerning eagerness that does not leave them exposed to things that may be spiritually that that may that may well be spiritually lethal in fact the question of whether the latest trend is dangerous or not is not a welcome question in most evangelical circles anymore whatever happened to be popular at the moment is what drives the whole evangelical agenda 
That mentality is precisely what Paul warned against in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. It has left evangelical Christians dangerously exposed to trickery, deceitfulness, and unsound doctrine. It has also left them completely unequipped to practice any degree of true biblical discernment. The sad truth is that the larger part of the evangelical movement is already so badly compromised that sound doctrine has almost become a non-issue. I would even say it's not, it's not that it's a non-issue. Sound doctrine is a nuisance to these people. The mad pursuit of non-doctrinal relevancy, even in the very heart of the evangelical mainstream, where you might expect to find some commitment to biblical doctrine and at least a measure of concern about defending the faith, what you find instead is a movement utterly dominated by people whose first concern is to try to keep in step with the times in order to be relevant. Sound doctrine? <laughs> Too arcane for the average churchgoer. Biblical exposition? Well, that alienates the unchurched. Clear preaching on sin and redemption? Well, let's be careful not to subvert the self-esteem of hurting people. The Great Commission? Our most effective strategy has been making the church service into a massive Super Bowl party. Serious leadership? Well, sure, that's a great series of uh, group, uh, I'm sorry, serious discipleship? Sure, there's a great series of group studies based on the Matrix trilogy. Let's work our way through that. Worship where God is recognized as high and lifted up? Well, let's get real. We need to reach people on the level to where they are. Evangelicals and their leaders have doggedly pursued that same course for several decades now in spite of many clear biblical instructions that warn us not to be so childish. And if, in, a, in addition to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, you should also see 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. So what's the heart of the problem? It boils down to this. Many in the evangelical movement have forgotten who is Lord over the church, they have either abandoned or downright rejected their true head and given his rightful place to evangelical pollsters and church growth gurus. <clears throat> I'm not going to disagree with that. I think uh, Dr. MacArthur wrote a very fascinating and lucid uh, uh, critique there, and um, I think he's absolutely right. And our prayer would be that even in this late hour, even in this late and dark hour right now within Christianity, that our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, would grant the church repentance and call us back to himself and to his scriptures and sound doctrine, and that we would receive, that the church would receive forgiveness for this abandoning of Christ and his word. All right, we're up on our second break. When we come back, it'll be sermon review time. Our sermon today comes from uh, Shane Hips, the new teaching pastor at Mars Hill Bible Church. That means he's one of the co-pastors, co-teaching pastors with Rob Bell up there at Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids. And Shane Hips, he be a universalist. Uh, you need to go back and listen if you don't know what I'm talking about uh, to previous stuff I've done on Shane Hips here at Fighting for the Faith. Anyway, we'll talk about that on the other side of the break. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address is uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's right, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back.
Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk to you about auto insurance. As the father of two teenage drivers, I know how expensive auto insurance can be. But as expensive as auto insurance is, it's nothing compared to the cost of not having it when you need it. That's why I'm excited to have Allstate Insurance as one of Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertisers. Did you know that drivers who switched to Allstate saved an average of $396 per year compared to what they were paying other companies? Now, I don't know about you, but I think $396 is a lot of money in these tough economic times. Why don't you give Allstate a call and see how much they can save you? You can reach them toll-free at 877-246-1511. Again, that's 877-246-1511. The good folks at Allstate will be happy to give you a free quote over the phone. And remember, you're in good hands with Allstate. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. All right. We are back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Time for our sermon review. As is our tradition here. You're thinking, oh no, tradition. Ah! Yeah, get over it. <laughs> All right, let's uh, cue up the music here. 
the good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us direct from Mars Hill Bible Church, where Rob Bell's co-pastor, Shane Hips, has recently been installed. He is now officially the one of the teaching pastors there. And to kick off the Lenten season, he's going to be preaching about Jonah. The sermon is entitled, The God in Nineveh. Something to listen for in this sermon. All kinds of mischief will ensue as a result of one critical event that occurs early on in the sermon. You will hear Shane Hip say, listen, Jonah, that story, it ain't historical. Therefore, that means it's allegorical. And since it's allegorical, that means we must look for the deeper meaning, levels of meaning about it. Whenever you hear a pastor talking like that, run for your life. Why? Because that means he's going to tell you something that ain't there. Because that those deeper meanings of the scripture, those are dictated by human subjectivity, not the objective text of God's word. So when somebody starts talking about deeper allegorical meanings, you can basically translate that as the God of their stomach is about to speak, not the God of the Bible. Now, let me kill the music here. By way of reminder, uh, Shane Hips, by the way, is an he's, an he's a universalist. I've actually had conversations uh, with Shane Hips in person, and we've also done reviews of Shane Hips' previous work at his uh, former church. And uh, let me re- let me play uh, for you a, a little soundbite from Shane Hips to remind you how Shane Hips teaches that all religions are like sailboats. All of them are designed to catch the wind of the spirit. But uh, the uh, wind of the spirit, the, see, the, the important thing isn't your sailboat. You're, you know, so one religion catches the wind of the spirit. Uh, they all catch the winds of the spirit. Just that some religions are better at catching the winds of the spirit than others. By the way, this is nowhere taught in the Bible. But let's listen to Shane Hips wax eloquent on that statement. Here we go. John is the ultimate unifier and integrator of two religious systems that have nothing in common. The Jews and the Greeks, nothing in common, nothing at all in common. Didn't even use the same language most of the time. So here John comes along and says, hey, to the Jews, you know that thing you talk about, that wisdom, that beautiful wisdom that you talk about? Yeah, that, right, you know that? And to the Greeks, he said, hey, you know that logos, that mysterious, beautiful thing with life and fire and and life? That, yeah, right, both of those things, wisdom and logos, they are actually one thing. And they found full and complete expression in the person of Jesus. So here's what's so stunning. At a time when it was unthinkable to try and unify religions, John is basically saying, your religion, totally valid, I love it, I'm I'm even using your language. And your religion, I love it, it's beautiful, totally valid, I'm even using your language. But I just want you both to know that there's something bigger than what you've got. There's something that transcends what you have. It doesn't nullify what you have. It doesn't get rid of what you have. It just moves beyond it. 
So John does this unbelievably beautiful thing of basically saying, I want to get past the religious divisions among us in our world. I don't want to get past it. Jesus comes to bring us past it. Jesus is the ultimate unifier of these various diverse ways of looking at the world. So so these external things, religion is about making these distinctions, and guess what? That isn't a bad thing. Having a distinct religious identity marked by some boundaries, knowing how you're different from other religions, isn't a problem. John isn't trying to get rid of that. He's trying to point beyond it. Keep it, but move beyond it. To lose your religious identity is like losing a sail at sea. The sail is like religion. The wind is the spirit. You need a sail to catch the wind, to harness the wind. But you've got to realize that that sail isn't the wind. The sail is actually dependent on the wind. See, here's the crazy thing. The spirit, the wind, doesn't need sails in order for it to move about the world. The sails need the wind. So the spirit, in order for it to move and operate in the world, has no need of religion. But we, those of us made the way we are, for some reason, need sails in order to catch the wind. We need religious structures, external things we can touch and see, and traditions and lineages that teach us so that we can better catch the wind. Now, some sails are built better than other sails. Some sails are bigger than other sails. Some sails are a different shape than other sails. And those differences matter. And sometimes one sail is better than another sail. In the same way that some religions are better equipped to catch the Spirit of God, some religions are not as well equipped to fully capture and be compelled by the Spirit. (laughs) Yeah, you're hearing that right. If you're hearing that for the first time, that's the guy who is now sharing the... uh, teaching ministry with Rob Bell at Mars Hill Bible Church. And don't think for a second that Rob Bell has no idea this is what Shane Hips teaches. Oh, he does. And that's probably the reason why Shane Hips got invited, because uh, I think Rob Bell and Shane Hips pretty much have the exact identical and same uh, theologies. They're just slight differences, but uh, they're both universalists. All right, so without any further ado... Here is uh, Shane Hips. The name of the sermon is The God in Nineveh. This was uh, preached just uh, this a, a couple weeks ago at Mars Hill Bible Church. Here we go. Uh, during the first service uh, afterwards, a gentleman came up to me and said to me, um, we didn't know that you were our teaching pastor. Uh, we, we had not been here the few times that you've been here, so we didn't, hadn't get a chance to see you or get to know you. Some of you, that may be the case. You may not know who I am or what I'm doing here. I am your new teaching pastor officially today, uh, and I'm very excited about that. Um, but uh, thank you. Uh, three people are excited about that with me. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's okay. Um, the, uh, what I was going to say was that um, he came up to me and he said, boy, we were really excited when Brian got up on stage and said, we have Shane Hips with us today, and Bill was standing on the stage. And he said, we're so excited to have someone who's like seasoned and wise and... 
So, that is not the first time I will be a disappointment to you. Um, my apologies. <laughs> but I'm useful and energetic. Doesn't that count for something? Okay. Um, <laughs> a couple of things. I need to, to just update you on a few things. So, the first thing is... Um, I don't, uh, you all have been incredibly welcoming to me and my family. You should know I don't live in Michigan yet, um, because, I mean, as you know, it's winter here, so there's really no reason to be living here. Um, so I commute in the winter. I live in Phoenix, uh, and I think you should all join me in that. It's only 3,000 miles. Um, no, we're trying to sell our house. Hasn't happened yet. We're on the verge. It's close. I don't recommend selling a house in this market. Um, and uh, so we're hoping in the next couple of months we will be able to be here um, full time. But I will, I will now be consistently on the teaching schedule, and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, the other thing I wanted to share with you is that we had an incredible experience at the church that I served at, Trinity Mennonite Church. Um, many of you maybe were here when Ed Zerker, the chair of that church's leadership team, came here to present me to all of you. Um, we also had the privilege of having Betsy DeVos, who's the chair of your elders, and Jeanette Banaschek, another member of your elder team. They came down to Trinity, and they uh, addressed our community, expressed the gratitude, and uh, received me publicly. And it was really powerful, very moving, very healing. And so uh, I wanted to express Trinity's appreciation uh, for you all. So it's been a beautiful, beautiful transition, and I hope it serves the broader church as they witness two communities learning what it means to come together. Um, okay, I think that's housekeeping. Let's get down to business. I have been uh, given the undeserved privilege of being able to kick off our series on Lent. So if you're not familiar with the church calendar, Lent is a season uh, that lasts 40 days. And Lent is derived from the Latin, which means 40. So, <laughs> yeah, evocative title for this just call it 40. Um, and Lent is basically a season that we commemorate the 40 days that Jesus spent fasting in the wilderness. And it leads right up to, it's the 40 days. Uh, I thought Lent meant spring. I thought it was uh, Old English, uh, lectin for spring. You know, let's just continue. I'm just... <clears throat> it's preceding Easter, which is the day Jesus was raised from the dead. And Lent is deliberately designed as a dark and a somber and a more muted season. And it's that way because it's intended to provide a counterpoint or a contrast to the celebration of Easter. And so there's something really powerful about taking an intentional journey into a darker season to allow for contrast to emerge. Uh, it actually heightens the intensity of what Easter can bring, the same way that a painting, if it has... No contrast, there isn't much form or beauty. So this is our way of sort of creating the art of contrast so that there's more beauty and intensity in the experience of joy. Uh, so that's Lent. Um, and the other thing about Lent that is important is in our culture, um, unhappiness is a form of treason. We're in a culture that constantly needs everything to be up and happy and well. And... Uh, as a consequence, we have this strange experience where there are very few places where there's a, an opportunity or a space for catharsis, where our grief, where our pain, where our sorrow can be expressed and freed. And uh, Lent is designed as a season for all of us to orient ourselves towards 
the darkness, not just in our own heart, but in the world. And as we orient towards that, the point is not simply... Uh, just a quick question. Uh, listen, I, I, I've got bigger fish to fry, but any of you out there who are part of a church tradition like confessional Lutherans, uh, <clears throat> and uh, you've been you know, observing Lent and you actually understand what Lent is all about, if you'd like to uh, email me, uh, what you ha- are already perceiving as major problems in his explanation of Lent, I would love to read your email on the air. So feel free to uh, chime in. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Unfortunately, I don't want to fry that particular fish right now, so we got to keep moving on. But uh, we got like you'll you'll hear what I'm talking about. Here we go. To wallow in it, the point is to shine light into it, to bring it into conscious awareness so that it can be dissolved. So what bring darkness into conscious awareness so it can be dissolved? Dissolved is Eastern pantheistic language. Hmm. This is a season where you have permission. You are not just you have permission. You are encouraged to become conscious of and befriend the darkness in your life. And this could be darkness of any kind. It could be befriend the darkness in your life. Oh, where does it say that in the Bible? Uh, pain as a consequence of sin, of compulsions, of things we're embarrassed and ashamed of. But it could be grief, things we've lost, jobs, people close to us, certain things in our lives. So uh, that's the point of this season. Uh, And then the other thing is if you're in a place... I thought Lent is a penitential season. Uh, I don't want to get too technical on that. Let's keep going. ...place in your life where you're like, (laughs) I'm feeling really, really good. I feel really, really blessed. I don't have a lot of darkness. Um, Then my encouragement to all of us who are in that position is this is your opportunity to be in solidarity with others who are suffering. That as you turn towards the grief in other people's lives, it begins to activate compassion in us. So that's the hope. Activate compassion. And uh, we have chosen a particular set of texts to help us walk through Lent. Uh, We've chosen to walk through the book of Jonah for our series on Lent. And uh, this is an ironic choice of text because everything I just said about darkness is true, um, but Jonah is actually supposed to be a very funny book. (laughs) What? Jonah is a funny book? you got to listen to his explanation here, his setup for this sermon on Jonah. (laughs) So so it's kind of weird that we would use comedy. Um, but in a weird way, it's, it's actually very appropriate because uh, Jonah is, makes use of a lot of satire. And satire is a wonderfully powerful ingredient in helping us address dark matters, difficult things. Satire is the cream and sugar in a bitter drink. It makes it more palatable. So we don't take any of this stuff too seriously. We have good humor about it, and uh, that's the hope. So there'll be some humor. Now, I should caveat... I am not in any way expecting belly laughs when you read the book of Jonah, um, mostly because comedy and comic sensibility is determined largely by your culture and your time. Like things that were funny 50 years ago to 20-year-olds are not funny at all today. Uh, so, you know, put like 3,000 years, two cultures and different languages barriers between us. The comic sensibility, that vibe is going to be completely killed. So 
What I'll try and do is occasionally just indicate where the narrator is winking at the reader so that you have a sense for why uh, there's some humor to be found in this so that we can all enter this, whatever this darkness is, with a sense of humor, (laughs) which will serve us well. Uh, All right. So I think we framed it. Uh, One last thing about the book of Jonah that's important. Uh, It's one of the books of the prophets, a prophetic book in the Older Testament. There are two testaments in our Bible. In the Older Testament, there are a bunch of prophetic books. And those books have a certain set of features in common. Two of the features that are in common are, one, there's always a specific date uh, and a king of Israel. So it's like a time stamp when these prophets were speaking. And the second thing is, these prophetic books are mostly just oracles, meaning the prophet saying, thus says the Lord, and then he issues forth the words of God to either critique or encourage the community. What's unique about Jonah is that there is no time stamp whatsoever. We have no idea when this is taking place. And we don't even know where Jonah lives. They never tell you where Jonah lives. Okay, got to pause yep. for a second here. Now listen to what he concludes from this. The other thing is, for being a prophetic book, there's no prophecy in it. <laughs> there's, not, there's no real oracle going on. I mean, an oracle happens, but it's not very detailed at all. There's very little description. It is mostly a story about a prophet. So uh, this is a really unusual thing. And the reason this is important to point out is that this kind of a book is intended to be read a little differently than you read other texts. Really? How would that be? The lack of any kind of specific time stamp or any kind of king or any kind of geography of where he's starting is an indication that this story is intended to be read as an allegory. Really? Where, really? where does it say that in the text? Now, I'm going to challenge this based upon Jesus' treatment of the story. Okay, If you have your Bible, turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. I will be starting at verse 38. Okay, We're going to go through this a couple of ways, but let me read it to you at first. I read from the English Sanctified Version. <clears throat> then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you, but... Jesus answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and will condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Okay, why is this important now? Jesus here in Matthew chapter 12 isn't speaking of an allegorical Jonah. Okay. Sometimes what you can do is you can basically go, all right, well, if it's allegorical, let's see, let's test it. And here's a way to test it. Let's put the word allegorical or allegorically in, in this place and see if this makes sense. <clears throat> Jesus speaking. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the allegorical prophet Jonah. 
For just as Jonah was allegorically three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. If Jonah is to be understood allegorically here, then one could conclude that Jesus isn't literally going to be dead and rise from the grave on the third day, but Jesus is only going to rise allegorically. Because after all, the sign of Jonah is only an allegorical sign. But then this also doesn't make sense. Here we go, verse 41. The allegorical men of Nineveh will rise up the judgment with this generation and will condemn it. For they, the allegorical men of Nineveh, repented at the preaching of the allegorical prophet Jonah. And behold, something greater than the allegorical prophet Jonah is here. Well, of course there will be something greater than Jonah the allegorical Jonah there, because Jesus apparently is real, and, al- and Jonah is not, he's just an allegorical character. See, <clears throat> no, Jesus talked about and discussed Jonah as if he was a legitimate historical character. And just because we don't know what his address was, we don't know whether he lived in Jerusalem or Samaria, or whether he li- he was... Uh, from the tribe of Dan or Naphtali or Benjamin, um, it doesn't matter. Just because we don't have his GPS location doesn't matter. And also, it the, since Jonah was sent to prophesy to the men of Nineveh, to the people of Nineveh, not the people of Israel, that would explain why uh, none of the kings of Israel or Judah are mentioned in this book. Why? Because it's not, this is kind of a side story here of God calling pagan nations to repent. But the fact that it took place while Nineveh was uh, around tells us something as to when generally the the general time frame for for the book itself. But Jesus wasn't talking about allegorical men of Nineveh who would rise up in the judgment. I mean, this is to allegorize everything that Jesus said. Jesus wasn't speaking allegorically. He was speaking historically, and he was speaking literally. Now, why would Shane Hips tell us that Jonah, the story is to be understood allegorically so that he can insert things into the text that are not there in the name of finding the, quote, higher spiritual teaching? the higher spiritual meaning. Whenever you hear somebody talking like that, run. I'm serious. Lest God should literally bring the roof down on that church because of their wickedness in judgment. Get out of there quick. Let's continue. An allegory doesn't make something not true. An allegory means don't get distracted by whether something actually happened in fact or what the deeper meaning might be. So the point of allegory is, like a parable, pay attention to the deeper layers of meaning. So that's what I'm hoping to do is as we look at the kind of the overt, obvious things, uh, we're going to try and direct our attention to the deeper meaning. And particularly this Sunday, we'll be talking about the kind of meaning within, what this teaches us about the inner life. Okay, now I mean it. We're going to get started. <laughs> Jonah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Seemed like a good place to start, as good as any. Uh, Let me read, if I can find my way over here. Yes, I can. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. I wish my name was Amittai. That's kind of a cool name. 
saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out. Jonah, the son of who? If this is allegory, why is it mentioning who he's the son of? Seriously, I mean, the very first verses he's reading from the book of Jonah tell us that he's not telling the truth. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. I thought this was allegory. How do allegorical people have fathers? I out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board go with them to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. That's our passage for this morning. Word of God comes up against Jonah. He says, no thanks. Please to Tarshish. Now, a couple of things that I find fascinating about this passage, and anytime you're reading the Bible and you see in one single verse words and phrases being repeated, it's usually an indication we should pay attention. The narrator wants us to know something. <clears throat> by the way, it could also be a mnemonic aid. And what I mean by that is, is that these stories were told over the fire, campfire, to the children and to the people of Israel. So when you see phrases repeated over and over again, many times it talks about the oral tradition of that particular passage or text. <clears throat> just want to point that out that as an option here. So the first thing you can see, obviously, to pay attention to, Tarshish. 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 <laughs> it's a funny word to say. Why don't you say it with me? Tarshish. Yeah, it's kind of weird, isn't it? Anyway. Um, Tarshish. Three times in one verse. That's a lot of Tarshishes packed in. The other phrase, from the presence of the Lord. Away from the presence of the Lord. Something is very important here. So what our narrator is doing is he's tying, linking together two things. Tarshish and the presence of God. So somehow, the narrator wants us to know that in Jonah's worldview, the way Jonah views things, is that there is a place he can go that will not have God in it. Really? Don't you think the, uh, the sensus naturalis would basically say that rather than saying there's a place you can go where God is not in it, that... Jonah was basically saying, no, thank you, God, and he was rebelling and disobeying God and heading in the opposite direction of where God was telling him to go. Let's continue with this higher meaning allegory here because there's going to be all kinds of mischief. Away from the presence of the Lord, Tarshish is where you go when you want to get away from God. That's where you go. Now, this is where the narrator is actually winking at the audience, at the, at the readers trying to help you see that this is actually funny. Um, and the reason is because of what they would have known about Tarshish. Tarshish, despite its funny-sounding name, existed in Spain, and it was a kind of paradise, known to be a paradise. So Tarshish 
was the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of Hawaii. (laughs) So Jonah is pretty convinced that the best way to get away from the creator of the universe would be to go to a place where that creation is on display. (laughs) That's funny. Not to you, but to me. Um, (laughs) How many of us when we say, this is just a joke. We say, oh, I I, I just need to get away from God. I don't want to experience his presence. I need to just go to Hawaii where I can bask in the lush beauty of creation. That'll help me forget about the creator for a while. No, of course not. So there's kind of this interesting thing here the narrator is doing. He's playing with with Jonah. Now, there's another thing, though, that the narrator does with Jonah, which is he sort of says, look, Jonah's kind of dim, but he's also somewhat astute. And this is where the, the energy of this passage is going. The what of the passage? The energy of the passage? Hmm, I think his pantheistic universalism is coming into play. Jonah, the other, the other, so there's a ge- geographical symbol, Tarshish, a symbol of the absence of God in paradise. And the other geographical symbol is Nineveh. Two places. Nineveh has two things, it would seem. One, wickedness and darkness. And two, the presence of God. So if, if, uh, if, in fact, we believe that there were places where God existed and God didn't exist, which I don't actually believe that, if that were true and you were a betting person, where would you place your money, where would you bet you would find God the least? In Hawaii or in the red light district of Amsterdam? Where would God be the least present to you? The red light district. Where would God be most present? Of course, Hawaii. This is fascinating that this story reverses it and says, you want to flee God? Yes, go to paradise. You want to be in the presence of God? Yes, go to this dark, wicked place. (laughs) The text doesn't say that. That's the thing about allegory. You turn the Bible, basically at this point, the Bible becomes Plato, okay? And at this point, he's got a big lump of Plato in his hands, and he's molding out these little figures and saying, see, look, the Bible means this, and he's squishing it and then building it back up and saying that it looks like this. The text doesn't say anything about what he's saying, okay? That's the thing about allegory. You can just make anything up that you want. Let me read the text again. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has, for their evil has come up before me. It doesn't say anything about God's presence, does it? But Jonah rose to flee tar- uh, to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, when you read the text, where was the presence of the Lord? Answer, wherever Jonah was when he 
heard the word of the Lord telling him to arise. The text does not say that the presence of the Lord is in Nineveh. It's basically the word of the Lord came to Jonah wherever he was, telling him to go to Nineveh because of their evil and wickedness. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. It doesn't say that the Lord's presence was in Nineveh. The Lord's presence was wherever Jonah heard the initial message from God. So he paid the fare, went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. It doesn't say the Lord's presence was in Nineveh. <clears throat> in fact, let me read this to you again. Arise, this is the Lord speaking. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. For their evil has come up before me. Even the way the Lord is speaking, is he making it sound like this is about the presence of God in Nineveh? Not on your life. That's the thing with allegory. You can do anything you want with the text. The more imaginative, the better. That's the way it works with allegory. But historical grammatical, the faithful reading of the text, you can't do that. And this is where the narrator shows that Jonah was on to something. This is where he's very astute. He knows something that is true that most of us often forget, which is, if you want to find God, if you want to experience the presence of God, one place you will most certainly find that God is in the dark, shadowy back alleys of the soul and the world. Really? No, the Bible doesn't teach that, and this text does not say that. You completely made that up and stuck it into the text using your allegorical interpretation. The parts of ourselves that we repress, deny, and disown, that we are frightened of, in that dark back corner room with the locked door, if you were to go and open that door... What you would find nestled in among the sin and the shame and the sickness and the sorrow is the creator of the universe reclined and relaxed completely at home. Not the least bit offended, not the least bit surprised, not the least bit fearful. So God isn't offended by our sin. Wow. Then why did he tell Jonah to go to Nineveh because their evil had come up before him? Hmm. Completely at home. None of it would surprise him. It's this fascinating phenomenon that the divine dwells in the darkest places. So this seems to be one of the indications, one of the lessons here, is that somehow this darkness is an important companion for us as we learn to experience the peace of God in our lives, as we learn to experience the presence of God in our lives. So, when you think about this invitation that I've given you, that we need to start turning towards the darkness and orienting ourselves in dark places, uh, most of us would find that a rather unwelcome invitation. Um, I don't know about you, I like pleasure more than pain. I personally prefer light over darkness. 
And that's a good thing. We're made that way. We're supposed to want that. Okay, again, no, that's not what the scriptures teach. And let's compare what he's saying to the, to the word of God. Go to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. <clears throat> Let me contradict him using God's word. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the, about the light, that all might believe through him. <clears throat> he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. The world became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the, uh, from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from John chapter 3, verse 19, I read, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. This theology of light and darkness that Shane Hips here is allegorically finding in Jonah, he's not finding it in Jonah, by the way, contradicts the theology of light and darkness found in the Gospel of John, should be rejected. But one of the things that's interesting, one of the challenges is because we prefer this pleasure over this pain, which is good, that's what Jesus came to offer, is light and life and joy and peace. But because we prefer that, one of the things we've learned to do is we have learned to settle for surface pleasure instead of ocean-deep peace. We've learned to accept and settle the kind of wispy cliche of happiness instead of this immovable, indestructible joy. And the reason that we have settled for the surfacey stuff instead of the deep stuff is because we don't know there's a difference between the two. And the difference is vast. Surface joy, surface pleasure is tied directly to events in your life, circumstances in your life. You get a new job you like, joy. Have a baby, joy. Get married, joy. It's real joy. It's not fake joy. It's good joy. The problem is 
It is utterly rooted in your circumstance. Lose the job, joy goes away. Baby gets sick, joy goes away. Marriage begins to get hard, dissolve even, joy goes away. So this whole surface joy, which we all are used to pursuing, we've sort of learned that everything in our life needs to be ordered in just the right way in order for this joy to kind of be constantly brimming. Otherwise, if things start to fall apart, I've got to replace that. It's this kind of frenetic pace to keep the joy in place. But that kind of joy vanishes like smoke in the wind the moment something changes. Where does uh, the first four verses of uh, the book of Jonah say anything about joy? circumstances and things like that oh yeah no word <laughs> sorry silly me i forgot we're not actually looking at what the text says we're allegorizing it and just basically making stuff up <laughs> what was i thinking and if you've lived for more than five years in your life <laughs> you know that everything changes nothing stays the same So the kind of deep joy that God offers is completely and totally independent of anything that happens in your life. It is immovable, unchanging, indestructible, always available, always available. Most of us have just no idea how to access it. So this returns me back to this issue of darkness. The reason that this darkness becomes a very, very important companion to help you discover the deepest, truest joy is the same reason that when you use a flashlight in the middle of the day, you're not impressed. Where in the Bible does it talk about embracing darkness so that you can experience the truest, deepest joy? Which of the apostles discuss this concept? Which? Oh, I'm sorry. Did Jesus? Which? Where in the Gospels does Jesus talk about this? Hmm. I don't remember any of them, Jesus or his apostles in their epistles. I don't remember any of those guys talking about this stuff. This is completely alien to the text. And you're thinking, how did he get here? This is so foreign. This is so alien. Ah, it started off with that mischief known as allegorizing. You can just make anything up. And now we've got stuff that isn't even in the Bible, apparently, that he's discovered all by himself in the book of Jonah. If you turn on a flashlight in the middle of the day and you walk outside... You can barely perceive that the bulb is on. It is meaningless. It is of no value. Kind of like the sermon. But the moment you walk into a dark room, pitch black, and somebody hands you a flashlight, it becomes brilliant. <laughs> It's the only thing that matters. Without it, you have nothing. You become utterly dependent on this light. 
It is the fundamental fact that this deep joy that I'm talking about is not based on the absence of pain. That's the surface joy. The joy I'm talking about is joy in the presence of pain. That flashlight in a dark room (laughs) becomes beautiful and powerful. And the same is true when we exist in the darkness of our own life but experience somehow this joy that wells up, that is offered in the midst of darkness. So this pairing of darkness and joy is a strange thing to pair together, but let me, let me try and explain it another way. Let me connect it differently. Um, my wife and I were, uh, took our kids to an amusement park a couple of days ago um, before I came out here. And uh, so we went to what's called Enchanted Island. And uh, Enchanted Island is an amusement park for people who are like under the age of five. And so what's great about it is it's, it's the only amusement park you go to where if you're taller than a certain sign, you can't ride it. <laughs> so it like, it's so great for kids. You know, they like show up. They're like, look, I'm shorter. That's awesome. Let's go. Um, so Harper, my older daughter, who's four, um, is a little bit more, I'll say she's conscientious. She's a good firstborn. She's conscientious about everything. And, uh, and she... Um, isn't exactly a risk taker. She's not a very effervescent. She's a bit more, she has a lot of interior. She's an interior child. And uh, so she wanted to ride one of the roller coasters, which was called the Dragon Wagon, which is, isn't that a great name, the Dragon Wagon? Um, and it's basically an oval, probably no bigger than this stage. And the oval um, has slight embankments on either side around the curves. And it just kind of goes in a circle. That's all it does. And the carts look like a dragon. There's a big dragon head. And uh, Harper gets on this ride, and we're there early in the day. And uh, she hops in the front car of, this, of the dragon. And she's all by herself on this ride. And she grabs onto those bar, the bar in front and is focused. <laughs> White knuckles. This is serious business. And the roller coaster begins to make its journey around the circle, around the oval. And as it goes, as, as she comes by the front where we are, we're like, hey. And she's like, absolutely no interest. We don't even exist. She's focused right now. Sheer terror. So we kind of watch her. She goes by a few more times, a few more times. Then eventually we get one of these, (laughs) which is a wave. Let me slow that down for you, slow motion. Anyway, it's a wave. Still totally focused, totally terrified, but she was waving. A few more times, a few more times. Finally, she gets off the ride. I'm like, well, that's going to be the end of that ride. She's like, Dad, I want to go again. (laughs) Okay, have fun. Hops in. Same intense focus glare, starts going around, then we start getting one of these. Yeah. Starts going around, going around, a couple more rides, now we're getting one of these. Kind of, you know, like the eyes are still focused, but she's wanting to turn. Goes around, about 15 more rides, we finally start getting this. Smile, wave. 
about 15 more rides after that. <laughs> Mom and dad are bored silly. Uh, <laughs> but my daughter is riding like this. <laughs> full of joy. Full of joy. And it occurred to me that for her, the, the fear, the threat, the thing that was so terrifying became the fuel for the joy. That without that, the joy wouldn't have been as intense. Okay, I want to point something out here. You can, do an ent- you can look in your Bible, go and get your computerized Bible, look up Dragon Wagon, and uh, you won't find a single verse that, that discusses this story. No, path, This is not a biblical story at all. And it's not even a an illustration that helps us understand what the Bible is teaching at all. She needed that in order to get to this. This is the rule of extreme sports. That's <laughs> why people do extreme sports. The roller coaster ride at the kiddie park, he just doesn't cut the adrenaline anymore. And so you need more and more risky things. And the joy becomes more and more pronounced. The same is true with the inner life. The what? The inner life. What's that? Where does the Bible discuss the inner life? When did Jesus talk about the inner life? Jesus talked, did tell us kind of sort of about the inner life when he said that out of the heart comes all kind of wickedness, adultery, deceit, lies, murders, thefts. So when Jesus discusses our inner life, that's kind of the source of all things icky and yucky and gunky and sinful and wretched and bad. An invitation to wander into the dark corners of the soul is not an invitation to wallow there and just feel pain for the sake of feeling pain. It is because when you find your way into this dark place, you find your way into the home of the infinite creator of the universe who is love and light. So when I go into the inner recesses of my dark and sinful, wretched, gunky soul, I'm wandering into the home of God? Really? Where is that taught in the Bible? You find your way into the very home of the divine. And when you do, when you open that door, light shines, exposing the darkness in beautiful and in brilliant ways. So if you're looking for an experience of God's presence, if you're looking for... If you're looking for an experience of God's presence, if you're looking for an experience of God's presence... Hmm, isn't that exactly what they promise will happen if you practice the Lectio Divina and their monastic, medieval, um, uh, mystical practices? For that deeper joy. Let me suggest a practice that you can perform today once. You can do it this week. You can do it through the season of Lent. You can do it the rest of your life. But let me propose this. 
It begins simply by answering two questions. That's all this practice is. Answer yourself for yourself two questions. First question is, what is your Tarshish? Not a very elegant question. What is your Tarshish? (laughs) Tarshish in this passage is a symbol of escape. Tarshish in this passage is the eject button for Jonah to get away from the darkness. No. If you read the passage correctly, Tarshish is the place he's trying to go to rebel against God and get away from him. God isn't the darkness. It says he was fleeing the presence of God. Are you saying the presence of God is darkness? What is your version of the escape? We all have them. Is it drugs? Is it pornography? Is it sex? Okay, now the things he's listing here would definitely qualify as sinful behavior. Drugs. Pornography. Yeah, I think the Bible has something to say about those as being sins. Now, will Shane Hips provide us with Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of those sins? Don't hold your breath. Is it eating? Is it a relationship? Is it a religion? Is it a book? Is it music? Is it exercise? Is it traveling? Now notice the list I just gave you, most of them aren't bad things. Tarshish is not a bad place. It's a beautiful place. The problem is not Tarshish. The problem is pornography and drugs. The problem is how Jonah was using Tarshish. The question to ask is, if my Tarshish is exercise, am I using that because I need to escape from reality? Or am I using it to bring me back to and usher me into ultimate reality? It depends on how it's used. She's on her way to Tarshish, I think. (laughs) Okay, let me see if I have this straight. Pornography. uh... Am I using it to usher me into reality or to escape reality? If I used pornography to usher myself into reality, would that mean that pornography is okay? How about drugs? Am I using drugs to escape reality or am I using drugs to, uh, you know, to experience ultimate reality? Well, I guess if I'm using drugs to experience ultimate reality, that would mean it's okay, Right. So, that's the first question. What is your Tarshish? What do you use to escape? Away from the darkness where the divine dwells. The second question is... No, darkness is not where the divine dwells. Read the Gospel of John. Darkness is where evil men go. They hate the light. Are you aware of your Nineveh? 
Nineveh, the Nineveh of the heart. Nineveh in this passage is a symbol of darkness. Darkness of all kinds. Could be the darkness of sin, something hidden that you're ashamed of. It could be the darkness of grief, something you've lost or are losing. Are you aware of your Nineveh? Are you- Notice how with an allegorical interpretation, you can just make any word mean anything you want. And then ask really dumb questions like, are you aware of your Nineveh? <gasps> I didn't even know I had a Nineveh. Where can I find my Nineveh? I mean, if you, I mean, if they did a CAT scan of my body, would they find my Nineveh near my Achilles heel? <clears throat> Are you willing to open the door to that Nineveh and name it? I had no idea my Nineveh had doors. The, the Nineveh I, I hold on to is a completely doorless, gateless Nineveh. Now, here's the thing. The point is not to get in there and fix it. That, what? That is not what God commanded Jonah to do. God did not say, I need you to go to Nineveh and then fix it. I want you to clean it up. He said, I want you to go to Nineveh and name what's happening. Okay, hang on a second here. <clears throat> Jonah, i got to go back. I, I'm not there anymore. Hang on a second. Jonah, chapter 1. Okay, go to the great city and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Preach against it. He didn't say anything about naming it. He said preach against it. Man, well, this is an allegorical interpretation. I mean, words have no... Words just mean what you want them to mean. This is Humpty Dumpty land. That's it. So the same is true for us. Your only task is to name that pain. Just bring it into awareness. Learn to welcome it. The things that we've disowned, denied, and repressed, allow them to surface. What a complete load of bovine scatology. Come on. Because when you do, they become exposed to this radiant light and love. Oh, so that's the solution. If you name it, then they become exposed to the light and love, and, and then you can experience peace. No. Jonah was sent to preach against the evil of Nineveh, preach against Nineveh. And you know what? According to Jesus, they repented. And Jesus Christ, in Luke chapter 24, says to us, the church, to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Naming the sin is part of it. That leads us to, that leads us to repentance. But the other part is proclaiming the forgiveness of those sins won by Christ and his death on the cross for our sins. This isn't a gospel. This is pantheism, or panentheism. It's Eastern mysticism. And this is not capable of saving, and there's no power of God here at all. And what you'll find, the most strange phenomenon of all, is that when you go to your Nineveh, you will go to the place that God dwells most comfortably.
Now here's the other interesting thing about this practice. If you do it enough, something else starts to happen. You learn something, which is that there is nowhere God doesn't dwell. (laughs) What you learn is in this passage, what is framed, at least in Jonah's mind, as two very opposing things, Tarshish and Nineveh, Paradise, darkness, God's presence, God's absence, these things are not separate. What you start to learn is, after you've spent time in the darkness, you start to learn that even your Tarshish, even the things that provide escape, even those things that provide the surface joy, they become redeemed. They become fleeting joys that remind you of the greater joy, that activate the greater joy. But it's this is completely crossless and Christless. Oh, and and by the way, it isn't Christianity. It's not dependent on those things. So two things that used to be separate become very, very close together. The darkness and the joy. And I don't know why this is. I just know that it is. You don't get there without first going through the darkness. Again, completely alien, out of bounds, offsides, foul. This is an illegal use of God's word. You cannot go around it. You cannot escape it and expect to find the deep abiding joy that all of us are after. So for this season of Lent... I pray and hope that we will acknowledge our Tarshish, our methods of escape, and that we will make a journey to our Nineveh, the place of darkness where the divine dwells. And when you go there, may you experience this light, this joy that is boundless, that is effortless, that is always available. It is a light that liberates. And a- <sighs> what a load of bovine scat. This is absolute garbage. This isn't biblical. This is just ridiculous. A peace that brings joy. Amen. I can't say amen to that. That was a complete circus. Yeah, there it is. Completely oddball circus of Christless, completely vapid mysticism. What a mess. Mm Kind of like the music. Folks, what you just heard isn't biblical Christianity. What you heard is the voice of a wolf. Somebody who has unwittingly become 
an agent of the devil. That is not biblical preaching. That is not Christianity. Quite frankly, I don't know what it is, but that's what happens when you dive off into allegory. You can make the text say whatever you want. Yet Jesus doesn't treat Jonah as allegory. In fact, he ties his actual, literal, bodily resurrection from the dead on the third day after he was crucified to Jonah's ordeal in the belly of the big fish. And Jesus talked about Jonah as if Jonah was a real dude. And of course, so does Jonah chapter 1, which says that Jonah is the son of... What's his name? Atai? Hang on a second here. Uh, Jonah, the son of Amittai. It's hard for allegorical prophets to have fathers, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that gets you, gives you an idea of what's going on over there at Mars Hill Bible Church. It ain't biblical Christianity is being taught there, but something completely different, something that sends people to hell because it doesn't point them to their only hope, the true light that came into the world, Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, who died on the cross for all of our sins, both yours and mine, and calls all men everywhere to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but instead will have eternal and everlasting life. God doesn't tell you to run around in the mucky darkness of your soul and and see him there on the couch in the darkness, feeling right at home. No, it says that men hated the light because they loved the darkness. And Jesus Christ is the light. Repent and be forgiven of your sins. This is false doctrine. This is not Christianity. And this is the stuff that sends people to hell. I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous financial contributions and gifts in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. You can support us a few ways. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and when you get there, click on one of our buttons. We have two of them. One says, join our crew. When you join our crew, it is a mere $6.95 a month. It automatically comes out of your account. So once you sign up, it's a, you know it, it, everything works on autopilot from that point forward. And, uh, and, of course, when you sign up, you also get access to our secret pirate cove, a growing treasure trove of historical theological resources designed to help you grow deeper in God's word, Christ-centered theology, doctrine, and apologetics. It's our way of saying thank you to you for joining our crew. Of course, if you'd like to uh, you know, donate an amount that you would like to choose, you can do so by clicking on our Donate button. You can fill in the blank there and decide how much you'd like to uh, contribute to our cause. And, or you can do it the traditional way. You can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's um, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious penal substitutionary death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.